Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we get an update on a Colorado Army base's mission to destroy stockpiles of chemical weapons. And we listen back to the story of a Coloradan who may be the world's first nonverbal podcaster. I feel in charge. I like being a leader. I like people to see I am a hard worker. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. The United States has hit a milestone in its efforts to destroy stockpiles of chemical weapons. 75% of them are gone. They're kept at just two army bases. One is in Kentucky, and the other is here in Colorado, where workers are striving to meet a deadline. They must eliminate the toxic weapons by 2023 under international treaty. But there is a hurdle they have to overcome first. KUNC's Michael DeOana has covered the Army's chemical depot in Pueblo, and he joins me now. Michael, welcome. Hi, Erin. Now, you've visited the depot for feature stories, and you've kept us up to date on this effort, which has made progress despite the pandemic. Yes. Uh, In 2019, I visited the high-security depot and a training facility in Pueblo. And since that time, workers have continued to make great progress in destroying the weapons, hundreds of thousands of them, at what's called the Pueblo Chemical Agent Destruction Pilot Plant. That's a mouthful. Um, You know, I spoke with site project manager Walton Levi about the timeline. Uh, We are shooting for uh, 30 September... 2023. It will be a historic moment if the weapons are all gone by that date. He is talking about the last chemical weapons in the United States. Uh, You mentioned an international treaty. That's the Chemical Weapons Convention. When the deadline for the U.S. to eliminate weapons came way back in 2012, about 10 percent of the weapons remained. And when the deadline for the U.S. to eliminate uh, chemical weapons came in 2012, there were about 10 percent of the weapons remaining. And there are two sites, and those are the ones contending with them today, uh, Bluegrass Army Depot in Kentucky and the Pueblo site. Uh, Congress has passed a law mandating that they be destroyed by the end of 2023. And I know you've dug into the accountability side of this, whether that goal will actually be met. But before that, I want to know a little more about what kind of weapons these are and how they even ended up in Pueblo. I mean, haven't chemical weapons been banned since World War One? Yeah, there are a few parts to your question. Let me break it down. Uh, first, the, all the weapons in Pueblo contain what's commonly known as mustard gas. It gets its name from its yellow color, and it's really horrible stuff. It can create large blisters on the skin, even in the lungs. It blinded platoons during war, leaving them vulnerable to attack. Hundreds of thousands of troops were left maimed or injured by the stuff during World War One, and tens of thousands thousands more died from it. In the years after the war, in 1925, an international protocol banned chemical weapons but did not outlaw their manufacture or development. So fast forward a few years. 
Here on the outskirts of Denver, Colorado, is the newest of our arsenals, the Rocky Mountain Chemical Warfare Arsenal. It is located completely out of the range of any possible air threat. That's from a U.S. military training film made in the 1940s. It highlighted a network of arsenals and manufacturing facilities in operation during World War II. The U.S. produced millions of chemical weapons rapidly in case the Nazis used them as a last resort. You know, they were the most horrible weapons that could be conceived of until the atomic bomb came along. Right. But chemical warfare wasn't a factor in World War II. No, though let's not forget that the Nazis used poison gas at concentration camps as part of their systematic murders of six million Jews. But uh, these weapons were manufactured outside of Denver, then sent to Pueblo, and have been there ever since World War II. When I visited the Army Depot in Pueblo, a colonel gave me a dummy shell to hold. Uh, They're about the same size and weight as a large fire extinguisher. Well, to this deadline, uh, is it going to be met? Yeah, to answer that, let me tell you how the weapons are being dismantled. Humans at the Pueblo plant are being assisted by robots. It's an assembly line where the shells are opened up, the steel gets melted down, and the mustard agent is sent to a reactor where it becomes what's called thiodiglycol. From there, microbes, like the ones that consume human waste and sewage systems, eat the stuff, and it basically turns into a salt and water slurry and then goes to a landfill. There's also another kind of weapon, mortars, and this process will not work as efficiently for those. So in order to hit the timeline, a different process is now being tested. And what kind of process is this? It's essentially incineration in what are called static detonation chambers. They've already been built, and the plant um, got an environmental permit from the state to do it last year, uh, though they haven't processed any mustard agent yet because they're in the middle of a testing and analysis phase. In the coming weeks, if all looks good to the plant and state regulators, they'll start processing the mortars in the chambers, which site project manager Walt and Levi calls SDCs. Yes, uh, we're very uh, hopeful, uh, optimistic, and I'll I'll say confident uh, that in February we'll start aging operations at the SDCs. So if that happens, Levi is confident the Pueblo site will meet its treaty deadline. He also indicated that the Bluegrass site is on similar track to meet the deadline. Now, the other thing is this is uh, totally a different process than the community in Pueblo had expected. So I ran it all by a citizen watchdog. Her name is Irene Cornelli. We have said from the very beginning of this program that we don't want incineration. Cornelli is a locally appointed member of the Colorado Chemical Demilitarization Citizens Advisory Commission. She said that while there was opposition to static detonation chambers initially, they're needed to get the weapons destroyed on time. They're, they're able to do it much faster than the other process would. And she's convinced that Colorado has enough regulations in place to protect the community health. It will be a minimal amount of uh, emissions that will come out of the plant. 
So really how things go in the next few weeks will determine whether the Pueblo plant will meet the deadline in 2023. Yeah, and whether the country will uh, meet meet the treaty. Um, and after that, there's a whole other story waiting to be told about the dismantling of the plant and turning the Army Depot site over to the community in Pueblo. Michael DeYoana reports on military issues for KUNC. Thanks so much for joining me today. You're welcome. We're now three weeks into the new year, and studies show that around this time is when many people give up on their New Year's resolutions. However, for those of you who made a resolution to learn more about interesting people doing fascinating things here in Colorado, and I know there are at least a couple of you out there, this next segment will help you keep that resolution going at least for another day. Today, we're listening back to one of our favorite stories of two women, mother and daughter, who are shaping women's history in the present. Mikkel Learned's story starts in South Korea, where she was orphaned at only three months old. She was then brought to Denver, where doctors would diagnose her with significant cerebral palsy. Then her adoptive mother, Catherine Carroll, entered the picture and set her sights on the good life for the two of them. That good life didn't come easily. Catherine had to advocate for her daughter in schools that had never educated a student with a communication and mobility disability, all the while fighting to get Mikkel on Colorado's Medicaid waiver program to cover wheelchairs, communication devices, and therapy bills. These days, after graduating as an outstanding senior in Denver and after starting her public speaking career, Mikkel and her mom, Catherine, are the masterminds behind the Shining Beautiful series, which has spawned a blog, a book, and a podcast. There's a lot more to their story, and so we're just going to let them take things from here. Here's Mikkel Learned and Catherine Carroll. We spoke to them back in March of 2021. I went to school in Denver, graduated outstanding senior and have always pushed limits. The podcast is another way for me to share my story. As a parent, um, Mikkel going through each of her, her schools and regular education, surprising with special ed support, mm-hmm. uh, we set up vocational goals for her in middle school mm-hmm. and high school. And that really set her up to graduate as outstanding senior, but it also gave her a chance to do work in summer school, some over the summers, like most kids do. And we really tried to follow a typical path. For years, I traveled with mom around the country presenting on how to get what she want and be successful. I had goals and worked hard. So she traveled to about 14 states and she uh, briefed Congress on um, working. I want to work. I want to make money is what she said. And um and then she was also able to speak at the National uh-huh. Press Club representing 8 million people with disabilities on the challenges between Social Security and work. So she really enjoyed that. But then when people started going to webinars and she looked at a, a white light, she kind of lost her her zeal for, um, for the work because she just wasn't getting what she usually got back. I did not like those because I could not see who I was talking to but podcasting. I get to talk with people and with Zoom and FaceTime, I can see them. And so my son, her brother, um, suggested that we consider podcasting because we'd been so successful. And so we, we went down that path. We have a lot of listeners and I'm excited to show people who I am and how technology makes my life and other people's lives better. We developed the website. And we started blogging and, and that's where the book came from was 
Um, the book is kind of a, a different piece because it talks about whether you can or not. And I think one of the things that we all doubt is as a mom, I wondered if I could be a good enough mom to Mikkel and help her reach her goals. She wondered if she could reach her goals. Her brother wondered if he could be a good brother. And many of the people that work with Mikkel um, to support her in her life wonder if they can help her do this because she's kind of a pioneer in that regard. There aren't a lot of people out there doing what she does. And so it's, it's kind of that overcoming doubt piece. So a motto that we have on our websites is uh, if you're going to doubt anything, doubt your limits. So we just keep trying stuff and seeing if it works. If it doesn't work, we let it go. Um, if it does work, we just keep doing it. <laughs> and we try to have as much fun and see everything is kind of a learning experience. So the overall goal is to keep learning. You know, and keeping that sense of community has been really important for both Mikkel and I, the Shining Beautiful community. Shining Beautiful comes from Mikkel's um, Korean middle name, which means Shining Beautiful. And that's Mikkel. She shines beautiful. And so when everybody comes into our our circle, our community, that's the goal is for this, for people to shine beautiful, to be their best selves. And uh, and that's kind of what the book is about, right, Mikkel? It's people's stories. It's a simple book. It's not nothing too sophisticated, but it's just people's stories on struggles they went through when they thought about being a friend. There's a nice story about Ian Harwick, who we met as a barista, and uh, he got involved and he helped us architect some of the things that Mikkel's been able to achieve in terms of her business and helping her get her own home, just kept problem solving and helping us brainstorm. So this has been a community effort with Mikkel getting ideas much more like a mastermind group or a brain trust. Technology allows me to be the boss of my life and I like being the boss. That's right. So the podcast is, gives her voice to that. <laughs> A little bit better. You, what you get in the podcast that you don't get in um, either the book or the blog is Mikkel Sassiness, <laughs> her idea of being a boss. So that's kind of fun, huh? I use my iPad and the touch chat app to communicate. I push the buttons and then the iPad speaks for me, kind of like Stephen Hawking. That's right. Mikkel actually met Stephen Hawking when he years ago when he came through town um, and he was doing a brief history of time he at the at the Buell Theater in Denver and he um, always when he was traveling that was quite a while ago and she was still in in school he would ask to meet young people who spoke like him and he he had a special audience with them to answer their questions and to encourage them because one of the challenges with her technology is that we're not very good listeners and communicators generally with somebody who takes a minute to put together their thoughts and um, and we're, you know, we're used to very quick answers. And even for Stephen Hawking, it would take him two or three minutes to do that. But technology at least conveys the thoughts. It's gotten better, less clunky. We use an iPad, um, as she said, and an application called TouchChat. I feel in charge. I like being a leader. I like people to see I am a hard worker. That's true. So I think we try to demonstrate it and, um, and celebrate, you know, being a woman all the time. I mean, I, as a parent, I really wanted Mikkel to feel the strength of her character and her abilities. Um, and, you know, our motto was to be a strong, independent woman and she, and to be the boss of her life. And she reminds everybody about every day that she's the boss of her life. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it took, right? And I'm challenged too, as uh, caregivers mm -hmm. oftentimes don't have the greatest of 
of lives um, because they they tend to tends to be a sacrificial setup where either the person you're supporting gets what they need or the person the caregiver gets what they need or neither one of you get your needs met and what we've tried to do is make sure that both of us are happy both of us are healthy both of us get what we want and we don't get it all the time certainly um, but that's kind of the, the larger picture and we've had both of us have had a lot of really good times in our life Thank you so much for talking to me today. And listeners, as always, keep shining beautiful. That was Mikkel Learned and Catherine Carroll sharing what they're doing with the Shining Beautiful series. You can find more information at KUNC.org. Colorado Edition's Henry Zimmerman edited that piece. Colorado edition from KUNC. Over the past year, there's been a renewed focus on keeping elections safe and secure and on increasing voters' access to the polls. The Senate is expected to debate two measures that proponents say would make it easier for Americans to vote and would undo recent efforts by several states to impose more restrictions. One of the bills would make Election Day a national holiday and would expand access to early voting and mail-in voting for all states. Versions of both measures have passed the House, but they face steep opposition in the Senate and may lead to a change in the filibuster rules. A recent exhibit at the Greeley History Museum puts the spotlight on the historical importance of voting to create lasting change in society. The exhibit stems from the 2020 celebrations of the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which officially granted women the vote. Although in Colorado, women had fought for and won voting rights more than two decades earlier. The collection was created in partnership with the League of Women Voters of Greeley-Weld County and highlights the organization's work and impact on the local community. To learn more, I met up with Holly Berg, curator of exhibits for the museum, for a tour. Here's our conversation from back in November. The title's a bit of a mouthful. It's called Empowering Voters Defending Democracy, the League of Women Voters of Greeley-Weld County. All of these items, well, they're a combination of items that were collected and loaned to us by the local League of Women Voters, but some of them are our collection items as well. And that's kind of the purpose behind the exhibit program that we do called Curator's Corner. This is a Curator's Corner exhibit. We invite groups and individuals to come and curate their own display um, using a combination of their items and our own. So the, um, a group of wonderful, outstanding women from the local League of Women Voters came and we worked for months together to create this display. So when someone comes into this exhibit, where is the best place to start? Oh my goodness, right inside the door. <laughs> so um, You're wasting no space. Yeah, no, we crammed a lot in this gallery with the eye-catching tea towel that is a reproduction of a poster that was published in about the 1920s. It says a woman living here has registered to vote, thereby assuming the responsibility of citizenship. <laughs> you can imagine that, you know, proud women hung these outside their homes or in their windows, and they may have even convinced other women to vote, uh, register to vote. 
if they saw those. So yeah, it starts right off here with kind of an introduction to the concept of what the League of Women Voters is. And then we go into their history and in Greeley and nationally. And then we have profiles of a few of the prominent members throughout the decades. This section is about their advocacy and action, what they've done to affect life locally. Um, a lot of people don't realize, I didn't realize before I did this, just how wide and um, deep their advocacy goes. It covers so many topics. There are plenty of items on display here from local voter guide pamphlets to a tiny Susan B. Anthony doll. I asked Holly if she has a favorite among this collection. Oh, yeah. Actually, the baseball cap is my favorite because of the story it tells. So it's a baseball cap I see LWVA, I assume that's League of Women Voters. What is significant about this? So it's significant because it dates to about 1974, and uh, it comes from the era when the very first male members of the League of Women Voters um, were allowed to join. So now, um, of course, today it is an organization for everyone, regardless of gender identity or status or anything like that. Um, they welcome everyone's input. But of course, before 1974, they didn't quite welcome men. <laughs> so we have this baseball cap here, and then we have um, a picture from the Greeley Tribune from 1974 oh. of the first male member. I have to say I'm really drawn to this glass box titled Ballot Box. Mm, yes, that one is an object from our uh, City of Greeley Museum's collection, actually, and it's standing right next to a mannequin dressed to resemble a suffragist, as if she's placing her ballot in there. But um, I love that she's wearing this sash of gold, white, and purple. It makes me want to maybe sash up when I go to vote. Yeah, you absolutely should. <laughs> yeah, so that sash in particular is um, an item from the League of Women Voters, and they wore those sashes to several events in 2020 to commemorate the uh, 100th anniversary. But this one is a reproduction. It's not an original from 1920, but it's meant to echo the photographs of all of the suffragists with their sashes and signs and all of that. But the ballot box next to it, it's an example from May 1901 is um, when the patent date is. And unfortunately, we don't have much about it in our records, but it is certainly a really cool example. The League's history of voter education spans decades, as evidenced by a timeline painted near the ceiling that documents the major moments. Um, so the timeline around the top is just kind of meant to bring everything together. Um, we worked to develop this timeline with not only local benchmarks and milestones, but also national ones as well to kind of put everything in context. The exhibit doesn't flow chronologically though, it is separated by theme. So, like I said, this wall is advocacy in action, this wall is voter services, and that kind of continues around the back, talking about what the League does to support and educate voters today. Holly notes that some of that work to educate and empower voters here in northern Colorado has been recognized at the national level. We are looking at a certificate. It reads, the League of Women Voters of the United States Certificate of Merit to the League of Women Voters of Greeley-Weld County for promoting first Greeley public transportation system in May of 1981. So that just is an example of the 
local advocacy that they undertake. And they were recognized by the national organization for doing this. So the way they kind of work is, um, it's outlined on here, but essentially they assemble teams, whole teams of people who go out in the community and interview about a particular topic. And they decide to conduct these in-depth studies. And only then do they undertake any sort of advocacy or change or recommend change to local government or that sort of thing. Um, They don't take on any issues lightly, especially if you hear in the news or if you hear anywhere that the League of Women Voters has taken an official position on something, know that that doesn't happen lightly. That has, that's the result of years and sometimes decades of study. It seems like a focus of this exhibit is about the power of the vote. Is that fair to say? And, and what do you hope people who come to, to look at this exhibit take away from it? That is fair to say, and I I hate to sound too cliche, but um, don't waste your vote. That you can see from the timeline that different groups of people have fought so hard to achieve their right to vote, and different groups of people have achieved it at different times, and some people still haven't. And to throw away something that we take for granted when other people are trying so hard to fight for it, it just seems silly. (laughs) Of course, voting is an exercise that depends on people participating. And so the exhibit does have one way for guests to make their voices heard. Well, there is a little voting interactive in this exhibit and asks you to respond to the question, should voting be mandatory? Mm. So we're waiting to see the results of that poll over there. (laughs) That was Holly Burr curator of exhibits for the City of Greeley Museums. Empowering Voters, Defending Democracy, the League of Women Voters of Greeley-Weld County will be on display at the Greeley History Museum through April of 2022. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we hear how natural disasters like the Marshall Fire impact survivors of domestic violence and what one Boulder organization is doing to help. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. And our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.